This is episode number 10. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings Podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hello, thanks for tuning in to episode 10 today with some young guns, some wonderful young players on the scene. These players, in my opinion, epitomize everything that's good about the new generation of creative string players. All four of these young men have been really well-rounded, in my opinion, in their education. I mean, they're just, they're fabulous players, and they've been informed by not only appreciation for classical music, but also, in most of their cases, American fiddle styles and definitely jazz in all of its forms. And this well-roundedness, in my opinion, brings a whole different kind of depth to their musicianship. Today's episode was recorded live at the Creative Strings Workshop which is the annual summer conference gathering for creative string players. Our episode and all episodes are sponsored by Electric Violin Shop. You can go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings. At their website, you'll find their phone number, and I encourage you to give them a call because that's what they do best, help people on the phone. These guys are really amazing. I hope you enjoy this episode with the Young Guns the creative string scene and don't forget to go to the show notes page at christianhouse.com where you can dig deeper and learn more okay here we go Here with the Young Guns, Eli Bishop, Alex Hargraves, Mike Barnett, and Greg Byers. I'm calling them the Young Guns just because they're young and they're great players. And I have the distinct honor of feeling that this camp has been a part of, especially these three guys' lives, since they were each about 14 or 15. They've been coming and then they quickly became teachers, you know, because they're so amazing. So I wanted to ask you guys some questions and give everybody else a chance to ask you some questions today so we could just see how three of the young, hottest fiddle players on the scene and one of the most amazing young fiddle players anywhere improvising, just how you got to be so good. What do you practice? What do you work on? But maybe there's other questions about like your lifestyle or your career or, you know, stuff like that or school that anybody has. Okay, then I just want to start with what do you practice? Eli, give us one exercise that you can show us that like could be something that like you would just practice any day of the week. Well, that's varied a lot over the last few years. I mean, I would say as of late, it's been less about vocabulary practice and trying to get more more stuff like that. I've been focusing less on trying to develop more vocab and focusing more on trying to like kind of solidify the stuff I have and make better statements with my stuff. So like what I've been doing is kind of like really focusing on using a lot of space when I play and trying to develop a solo starting from like the lower range of my instrument up to the higher range of my instrument with less notes to more notes and stuff like that. Does that make sense? Wow. Could you show us an example of that? Maybe sure. Greg could back you up on it and you could show us sure. what you mean. Yeah, well, you, you want to do something? Let's just do like a blues in, yeah. in G or something. Cool. One. Two, one, 
of what you're doing just so I make sure I understand it is you're just trying to build a solo with one kind of arc which involves playing fewer notes shorter phrases in the beginning low on your instrument and then getting into longer phrases and also going higher up on the instrument yeah like I think I did a chorus pretty much all my G string on the first chorus opened it up to my D string as well on second up through my A on the third one started to try and play a little more ideas also trying to pick ideas though you know like do 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 little like motifs to like replicate and stuff like that and then I got up to my E string start playing a little more things like that I haven't really been developing as much bebop vocabulary the last couple of years as I was when I was young a few years ago and so I've been trying to figure out ways to still improve with what I have now that makes sense yeah. you know and really focusing on my swing feel too how so, do you focus on your swing feel just by really paying listening yeah paying attention do you record yourself mm -hmm. when you practice yeah. You listen back. Mm -hmm. You kind of keep score. Definitely. For two years ago, I was at this camp. I recorded every solo I took, you know, and listened back to it. it was really like critical of it. It was good because a lot of them I was like, oh, I think that was pretty good, and then I heard it, and I was like, oh, that was not. There was a lot of things wrong. And every now and then there'd be one I thought wasn't that good, and I saw a lot of good things that did come from it, which is the benefit of you know recording yourself either way. Do you think that the more you record yourself, the more that you're able to accurately gauge whether or not you will like what you played? <laughs> I don't. I, mean, I can't, still yeah. can't tell. I don't know. Notice sometimes I sometimes I think that. I know and sometimes I don't. That's great. Anybody have any follow-up questions for Eli on that? What he would just kind of demonstrate it? Because I don't know that we can do it as a group exercise right now, but I think, yeah, it's, a, right. but I think right. it's a great example of how you can structure the practice of improvisation around giving yourself limitations. And those limitations can take many forms and involve many types of structures. In this case, he didn't say anything about harmony or vocabulary or language. It was just this idea of playing shorter phrases low and then building into you know longer phrases high, which I love that. Okay, moving on. I want to ask Alex the same question. Is there, you know, like one thing that you would practice like any day of the week or anything you want to share, like an exercise you want people to share or just something you want to share about what you're working on currently? I guess for me, I've never been good about sticking to like a certain exercise or routine and it's something I would like to get better at as far as like consistent practicing you know but something that I've found that works for me is basically just like I just start playing and that's the easiest way that I start practicing or else I'll just you know I'll sit down and all the all these ideas will be floating through my head of things that I need to be practicing and, and I just get really overwhelmed and I have a hard time like picking out where to start so for me I kind of just have to start playing first and then you know just tell myself I'm just gonna like try to make the best music I can out of whatever just pick a tune that you know I'm trying to work on or whatever it might 
might be. And within no time, there's always something that comes up. Usually just try to go with the first thing that comes up. If it's an out of tune note, then I'll like work on intonation for a while. Or if it's like a dexterity issue, then I'll, you know, I'll work on scales or, you know, bowing. And one thing I've been really trying to focus on is just staying physically relaxed a lot more and like trying to keep track of, you know, my breathing while I'm playing and keeping my shoulders relaxed. Cause I often tend to physically reflect what's going on in the music emotionally. And sometimes that has a negative effect on like what I'm able to do. So just trying to watch myself in the mirror while I'm playing and like make sure my neck is relaxed. And more specifically, you mentioned swing feel. And if there was one consistent thing, I guess that I would try to work on it, it I guess it would be feel and working on that both with the instrument and away from the instrument. One thing that I've talked about with various classes here is just getting comfortable with uh, the triplet feel and the six eight. And that was actually one of the first things I remember teaching me about when I was coming here is feeling the triplet feel under the swing groove and uh, I learned more about that at Berkeley as well. So often that'll just involve practicing walking in four or three and, and clapping at various types of claves or like patterns over the triplet and then trying to apply that to the instrument. I love what you said about just that you just will get the instrument up and play before you even know what you're going to practice. So it's part of the reason you do that because you think if you start thinking about it you just won't play so you just kind of want to put it in your hands and then that. It's mm-hmm. Yeah it's kind of like what I need sometimes and I want to strive to have more of a methodical way of this is like an exercise I can consistently do for like X number of days and do that at that time. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. <laughs> so for me, I found out playing along with a recording or playing on my own and just trying to make the most out of that and making the music sound the best it can. And like I said, there's always something comes up within no time. And then I know like, you know, what to work on. But it's not necessarily consistent. That's the thing. And I so I wonder if I'd benefit more from like trying to be more consistent with what it is. But on the other hand, you're not delaying practicing, which which I know mm-hmm. I've been guilty of. Just thinking, well, I, mean, I should practice this, or I should practice this, and then I just don't play at all. I don't pick. Well, up. I, I struggle with that I think too. Picking yeah. up the yeah. instrument is a great, you know, starting point. Right. <laughs> to yeah. get off the right foot. <laughs> or, or like what I said about you know the clapping and stuff. Just something else, musical or creative, that doesn't necessarily involve the violin. That's mm-hmm. something big for me. Is if like the idea of practicing the violin seems overwhelming to me, then I'll just work on my time or sit down at you know the piano or a percussion instrument and just try to get into a creative headspace and then that usually leads to wanting to play the violin. I'm curious about how you practice relaxation if there's anything we could try like briefly and or even with the triplet meters maybe or maybe both. Yeah. Just something you know briefly to give everybody a chance to to try that. Yeah well I'm I'm no expert on like any particular technique for like relaxation but I uh, took a semester of some Alexander technique at Berkeley and one thing that I learned from that was just kind of these little reminders that you'll give yourself and I'll do this also like on stage like before or a solo or if I'm just like kind of feeling tense or on edge and one thing is just feeling grounded giving into gravity and like feeling uh, your ankles and knees equally grounded on the floor and like you can bend your knees so it'll just like you ask yourself these questions like are my feet and ankles relaxed can I bend my knees and then the biggest one for me I found is can my neck rotate I found that if I'm working on like a tricky passageway and it's like I'm struggling with I'll literally like play it while I'm like rotating my neck and I've been amazed as to how that seems to free up everything Thing I'd more in tune, I can you know execute passages differently. Shifting is the one thing that that can mess with because you don't have as much resistance, you know, as far as just working on passageways. Just literally, like, you know, you look kind of ridiculous, but literally, like, rotating your neck while you're playing. Can you show us the walking and clapping thing? Yeah, sure. I, I think mean, a lot of you have probably, I've, I think I've shown the basic, uh, like, 6 8 clave, which you hear like a lot of drummers do over like a swing groove, would be like, so if you're walking the quarter note, it would be.
And the other way you couldn't feel that is in three. Um, so the clave would say exactly the same, but then you feel the big three instead of the four, and that would be... Emphasize different parts of the triplet, like wall, like over top of the claves. So if it's like a. So that's like the second part of the triplet. And that's often an awkward one to feel, you know, initially, which, you know, you don't hear as much in like, you know, American music, but you do hear in like West African music and, and Elvin Jones is like a big one for like feeling that kind of stuff. And then the same with like the third part of the triplets, like, uh, So this is like if you're in the subway, you could just be kind of quietly doing this and like moving your feet. Kind yeah, of yeah, sure, totally. Or walking down the street, you just you actually put it to the pace of your walk and. I'll do that sometimes. Yeah. Yourself yeah. Or just so when you're sitting around, you're just practicing in your head in a way almost. Mm -hmm. And then practice playing over groove like that. Like sometimes I'll record just like on GarageBand or something a basic groove that has like the four and the three and then like the clave over top and then work on like just playing like a head over top of that or like clapping the clave and trying to sing ahead. Working on that has just really helped me personally like just feel more rhythmically confident. Even if it doesn't seem directly applicable to the violin, it's it's helped me out a lot. It's almost like staying in shape or something. When I feel like I haven't been doing it as much, then I feel like I'm not feeling the groove as well as if I'm like doing it on a regular basis. Nice. In weird ways, it's I feel like it's helped me like playing like up-tempo bluegrass, which you would never expect practicing the 6 eight clave to help, but I think it's just like feeling the space between the beats in different ways. Barnett, what kind of stuff are you working on or is there anything that you would suggest that's just like a useful exercise that's been useful for you in the past or that you're doing now that people could use in their practice? It's funny, I was thinking, I agree with all that. I use a lot of all those ideas these days too, but I was just thinking it's funny how many ideas I've had for practicing or how much, how many things I practice have come from this camp and uh, people at this camp. First, uh, like I think picking up the instrument has been big for me too. Just if I pick up my fiddle and just start playing, then uh, usually I'll find something and work on it for a while. A lot of times my practice comes from listening to music and I'll happen upon something that I'm really into for you know the next few hours and then i'll go play and i'll try to either get a few licks or something from the recording or i'll just try to play along you know i have the luxury of having alex down the hall these days so <laughs> sometimes we'll you know be working on a same tune and get to play a little bit and that's helped me a lot finding someone to play with and kind of put a lot of the stuff that i've been working on into action so you're saying uh in order to just start playing to put the violin in your hand and start playing is there something about the environment that 
Or is there some trick like just leaving the violin out of its case or yeah. the fact that you live right next to Alex? I mean, are there any tricks like that to help you put the violin in your hand more often? Or? Yeah, absolutely. Actually, usually either have a, a fiddle out in my room or, um, you know, in the kitchen. Or so it's <laughs> out. the only other room. You line around. <laughs> <laughs> it's the one communal spot of the, uh, of the apartment. So it's the not kitchen, in the case, so it's out. It's yeah. out. It's just yeah. ready to be played. Rarely in the case, yeah. <laughs> That's yeah. huge. Love Definitely. That. I think the first person that I heard talk about that was David Greer, this acoustic guitar player in, uh, in Nashville. He's really amazing. He says he, he never puts the guitar in his case unless he mm-hmm. absolutely has to. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, he plays all the time and amazing. So I started doing that once I heard that and more lately. But also it sounds like the environment or the social context, having, you know, specifically Alex or maybe other people around who are excited about playing. Absolutely. Is that a big thing for you? Because I know when you were in Boston at the Claridge's house, everybody always had instruments all over and everybody was playing. So Yeah. And I noticed that because if I'm at home, you know, I may not necessarily have the violin out, but I was like, oh, everybody's around, everybody wants to play. It, it kind of helps. makes a big difference. And I moved to New York in September, and the year before that, I had moved from Boston to my parents' house, and I basically just kind of had a year off. Uh, I wanted to like work on a lot of concepts that I'd learned from everywhere and just feel like I needed that space. So I, I basically had a year of like isolation, you know, I'd be on tour and then I'd come home and I'd like basically be by myself, like my parents be working and stuff. And I think that was a good year for me, but I also noticed some social things that were influenced. Like I just felt very uh, awkward because I was out of the practice of, of hanging with people and playing music with people. It goes socially and musically, I just felt like very insular. And so moving to New York and just in general, having like a community of of friends and people to play with has been really important to me and irreplaceable, you know. But as far as things that I work on, it's a little bit random sometimes, whatever I'm interested in, but I agree with what Eli was saying about how trying to lately um, find a niche for myself of some sort with things that I'm working on. So if it's a theoretical concept, I have so many voice memos about theoretical (laughs) concepts that I've gone through from this camp and everywhere. And like just trying to find ways that I can really utilize those to have my own voice of some sort. Mm-hmm. Just because I'm not going to be the next Billy Contreras, the next Christian House, the I am who I am. So I got to find some way to, to do that artistically. And mm-hmm. so I guess I've been focusing on that more. And New York has also helped that too because there's so many people trying to make it and do their own thing. And it's really inspiring to see like all these different artists, you know, who do completely different things, but I respect equally, you know, because they're different and equally amazing. Yeah. Did you have a question, Elle? I was wondering how you guys, when you guys are so busy, like you guys are on tour or, or teaching like here, how do you practice smart? Like, uh, how do you practice um, efficiently? For me, sometimes making a list can mm-hmm. help. You know, just kind of writing down yeah. some things that I want to work on and, and looking at the chunk of time that I have during the day and say, I'm gonna, I really just want to practice for the next few hours. So. Mm-hmm quickly jotting down, I'm going to work on this for maybe 15 or 20 minutes and it could turn into more, but just sort of like breaking up the time and trying to focus on multiple things so I don't get hung up on like just working on this concept and leaving out rhythm completely or harmony completely or whatever it is, you know, try to write something or work on a new tune. 
are live at the 2015 Creative Strings Workshop with Greg Byers. I was gonna say that I remember being an undergrad and thinking like, man, like I'm doing these gigs, I'm in all these ensembles, and like I don't have any time to practice. And then I got out of school and I had less time to practice. And I was like, what? what's going on? And I, I realized that for me, the biggest thing has been you can make almost every opportunity an opportunity to practice. You know, there were a lot of times where I would do like some orchestra thing and I was just playing whole notes the whole time. And I was really bored and I was like, I could be working on so much more. And I sort of realized like, well, let's use this as an opportunity to practice something. So I'm doing whole notes. Okay, I'm going to work on my vibrato today. I'm going to see if I can just have perfect technique and I can have the exact rate of vibrato that I want. And I know that, you know, my finger is vibrating the exact way I want it. I'm staying super relaxed. And that's what I do. I, I changed it from like being like frustrated about like, oh, I'm doing just whole notes to like, let me use this as an opportunity for growth. I'll be doing like some recording work and let's say it's not the most exciting thing to me. That's okay. If it's with a click, you can go in and you can literally pull it down in the millisecond and see like, okay, well that take was like, three milliseconds late and I want to be perfect you know and it's it's not like you can't maybe you can't hear it but you can develop your ear to hear time like stretch out more and more as you really dig in so you know if you're like on the bus or something and they're playing like cheesy music you can try to think about like okay well what about this music can I actually like learn from for me, uh, one thing that's really been helpful has been um, dissecting drum parts because I think rhythm is so important to every every musician, whether you're a percussionist or not, rhythm is so important. Think about like what elements make up this beat. You know, if it's acoustic drums, like what parts of the drum set are doing what, and how does it combine to form this groove, and why does the groove feel good? And maybe you're listening to like you know like Questlove, the Roots. Like why does this groove feel different? Well, he's placing the kick drum in a certain place, and he's placing the hi hat in a certain place. And just really trying to use every opportunity even if you're if you don't have an instrument on you sometimes you can just practice silence sometimes just being still and appreciating silence will translate into your music as well and allowing every opportunity every moment to sort of be a moment of practice whether you have your axe in your hands or not but when i do practice sometimes i'll want to learn a tune and so i'll practice that specific ways I was going to do some Kosman stuff, these cello exercises, and I think it's just, I don't know how it's going to apply to violin, but we'll, we'll find out, right? We'll find out. And a teacher, uh, Erica Duke Kirkpatrick from CalArts, turned me on to these Kosman exercises, and they're kind of brutal. I don't really do a ton of them, but that's why it's perfect. You do like five, ten minutes of it, and like, you're ready to go. So, you know, in an opportunity like this, I like to use a metronome, so I'm developing my rhythm on top of everything else, you know. I'll give you two exercises. Uh, the first one, straightforward, I'll spell it out. So we're gonna go one, four, three, four, four times. Then we're gonna do one, four, two, four. But for us, that's one, three, two, three. The notes for violin will probably be different, right. but the notes are actually not important. It's more the dexterity nice, that we're developing. That's cool. mm -hmm. So one, four, three, four. One, four, two, four. One, three, two, three. Go down a half step, repeat.
Now, we'll do that first. Let's just do that first. All right. Is it feasible to do half steps? Sure. I you guess know, so. I, it really doesn't matter if you're doing half whole steps. It's about those combination of fingers, doing it fluidly, doing it. So we can do any any notes we want. Then. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, Let's make okay. some cacophony. So one four three four for one. four times, then one four two four, then one three two three. Then go back a half step and do it all over. All right. Any notes we want, right? Yeah. Any notes. Any notes. Let's try it Let's out. Let's start on D. And um. <laughs> Let's all let's all let's all try to do it at least rhythmically together. Oh yeah, yeah? okay, good. So like do ba do ba do ba do ba do ba do ba one, two, three, four. get it. What I think about when I'm doing that is, first of all, especially the faster I go, you have to be relaxed. You can't tense up or you're not going to be able to go quickly. I also really think about when I do one, four, two, four, the third and fourth finger are a unit. So they're operating together, right? And when I do one, one thing I really think about is keeping fingers together. So when I go one, four, two, three, and four all come down together as a unit. Then one, one, four, two, three and four come up as a unit. So that we're thinking in units of fingers. I have one that is like a conceptual exercise, different than, the, I had another technical one. I want to give everybody a conceptual one that you can do. This is pretty easy. So it's just improvise continuous 16th notes as fast as possible, but you have to do it at least three minutes. Okay, so let's try it, ready? You're gonna improvise you know, 16th notes or eighth notes as fast as you can. It just has to be playing as fast as you can, basically. Do you worry about like all separate bows? No, I just do slow. You can do a lot of slurs if you want. Cool. Do you usually but, pick like a fast tempo for 16s or just like slow 16s? Um, I just think like play really fast. Okay. Continuous, continuous 16s. <laughs> okay. So like if I could do it like this, yeah. Uh, Okay, let's try it. Ready? <laughs> no, but the thing is that you, you're going to go through various phases, though. Yeah, yeah. You have to allow yourself to walk through doorways. When you first start, it's going to feel one way. That's why I want us to do it for, like, at least three minutes. Ready? Here we go. Go.
it's really cool. Yeah. You like it? Yeah. Yeah, what do you think about it? <laughs> like you say, you just like, kind of go through so many different like stages mm-hmm. with it. How do you approach it when you do kind of like stumble? Do you slow down the tempo or do you kind of like let it be noise for a too. second yeah. and keep trying to stay? In? Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. either way. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you, you, you can go either direction with that. You could, yeah. wanna, you could have variations where you just play a little... Because sometimes I'll just, I won't do as full speed, but I'll just try to play whatever I think um, at my limit. Like, why don't we do like a rhythm changes or something and like B flat, but like pretty fast, but you can still handle it, right? So let, I'll just give you um, rhythm changes in B flat. I want you to play continuous eighth notes. So you got variation on this, right? B major. One, two, one, two, three, four. Approach the exercise almost backwards in a way is to take something that's really hard, like at a tempo that's too hard or in a key that's too hard, and say whatever you play on it, make sure that it's perfect. Like mm. yeah. so, so, and yeah. by playing much less. So I'm gonna give you now. I'm gonna give you B rhythm changes, right? Mm-hmm. But I want you to play much less and only limit yourself to only playing when you're absolutely when you sure. You know you can execute it. When you know that you're mm-hmm. gonna execute something in rhythm and in the changes. Okay. Right, as opposed to the uh, what we just did, which was like, you know it's gonna be wrong because it's already too hard for you and you're just forcing yourself, right. you know, you're just kind of forcing yourself to play whatever. So let's try that now. Okay. Are you up for it? I'll give it a shot. <laughs> okay. So, no, but you can wait as much as you want. You don't have to play it ever, in fact, right? Mm-hmm. One. <laughs> Thanks. Two. <laughs> except for the bass line. I'm gonna do a really easy bass line. One, two, one, two, three.
So what did you experience? Like, what did you experience doing that one? I don't know. Leaving more space, and it's in certain ways, it's a little bit liberating because it's you're just kind of thinking about making the most of the situation, even if like working with your limitations, kind of. Mm -hmm. What I notice with myself sometimes, if I force my myself to take that much space then eventually it becomes easier as the solo goes on. And I could be imagining it, but that's what I was thought was happening with you, that like, in the beginning you're like, oh my gosh, this is B, and so, so really be careful. But then as the solo went on, it got easier and easier for you. Right, like right. Almost psychologically, you feel more relaxed, and you're hearing things more clearly. Whereas if you go the opposite direction, mm -hmm. and you just start playing without thinking, without limiting yourself, everything you play, is for me, is just like a train wreck. <laughs> Mm -hmm. But if I'm really picking my battles and giving myself permission to wait, then I start to develop the clarity and I can usually like play much faster and make the changes more and do more cool mm -hmm. stuff. I don't know if you well, experienced that or not. Yeah, definitely. You did feel that a little bit? In the, okay. Yeah, it's like you see things through a different lens and then you can play it, you know, it's at after a certain point because you're approaching it differently or something. Right. But one thing I noticed watching you play last night is just physically putting the instrument down like yeah. in between phrases mm -hmm. which I hardly ever see any improvising violinist of any kind do but I think just like the physical act of doing that even it seems like huge and seems to really open mm -hmm. things up or I don't know if you think about that or if it's just a natural thing but that's interesting yeah it, I can't remember if I ever used to think about it but it does help me yeah something that you see horn players do well because they well they have to too to take a breath but just in general like you know between a phrase like putting the instrument down or something yeah. yeah that used to be a technical thing that my teacher had me do i think a long time ago he would tell me to look for those resting points when you can breathe and then when you do to really breathe uh -huh. and then you know <laughs> come back and said because as you were saying we want to try to be loose when we're playing but sometimes we can't help but get tight so the best the next best thing we can mm -hmm. do is be like okay i have two measure or a measure of rest start over again and then you know yeah. that taking those frequent like stretches or breaths you know will help you be more relaxed so mm. that's great any questions about any of that i have a i think i came up today finally with the best way of sort of like how to arrive at how to be able to do this and it's essentially um taking the tune days of wine and roses and we want to internalize the chord scale structure so it's like how do we do that so days of wine and roses right like, well, okay, let's do the super, like, Western classical way. Right, I'm gonna do, like, scales. Okay, well, alright, that is, you know, the scale associated with the chords, and okay, that works. And you're starting but, on the root of each one of those yeah, chord exactly. scales. But that's, that, like, so that vanilla. That's so vanilla. That's not really gonna help you internalize this stuff. You're not going to know it like the back of your hand. Um, and so this is something that when I was a junior at University of Miami, he had us do, but I'm going to come up with some steps here. So the first thing we got to be able to do is if we start on like a third or a seventh of the chord, being able to voice lead through the whole song, right? And even, you know what, the basic way, just do whole notes. Just start there, you know? And it's like, some of my students, like, that was a challenge for them. Just being, you know, if we're, sure. You know, et cetera, et cetera, right? So, okay, super basic but it's gonna give you that basic outline and you're gonna un understand that a lot better, okay? So now let's start arpeggiating the chord tones, right? 
once again, I'm starting on the root, right? This is a handicap. We don't want to have to think about always starting on the root. So the next level of that is we want to set a predetermined range on our instrument, whatever is comfortable for you, all right? You don't feel comfortable with thumb position? Don't include it. You want to really challenge yourself? Only do it in thumb position, right? And I'm going to continue going up to that top and down to the lowest possible point, voice leading through only chord tones, all right? So what I'll do, can you uh Play just... a melody or something else? Yeah, that'd be cool. Let's, let's try that. Let's do a little bit of that. One, two, three. So I'm going <laughs> to conveniently stop when, I, awesome. uh, when right, I can't yeah. do it for yeah. the recording. Yeah. Um, so, right? So that's the next level. So you saw I'm not always starting on the root. I'm just going to whatever is next in the direction I'm going. So it forces you to understand what all four chord tones are at any point and keep going. And it's a very clear outline of the harmony, mm -hmm. right? So then the next level we want to be able to do is these chord scales and we're going to do the same thing. We have a predetermined range on the instrument and we're going to play eighth notes and we're just going to keep going through that range in the same direction. And sometimes you might land on the downbeat on a four and that's not technically correct, but you're sort of forcing yourself to change in the middle of a scale to a new scale. Um, voice leading the scale. Yeah, voice leading the scales. Exactly. Let's try that. Let's okay. try that. A one, a two, a one, two, three. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You get it, you get it. I mean, heck, I can work on this stuff too. But it's great because it really builds your strength in knowing that chord scale, forwards, backwards, over the range of your instrument. And you do that for one song, like, and that's what we were doing. Just, if you don't feel comfortable doing that, take it one note at a time. And some, you know, I was helping my students be like, okay, we're on beat two, so now we're on this. Mm -hmm. Okay, next note. Take as much time as you need to figure that out. Start as slow as possible, but be 100% accurate. And you slowly build that up until you can do it in time with the tune you're doing. And if you do that with one tune, you're going to see the difference. Yeah. Do that with one tune. It doesn't even need to be Days of Wonder Roses. Do that with the blues. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I really agree with that as practice. But, but one thing that I would temper it with, just from whatever it's worth, just another guy's opinion, is that I feel like when you're taking on a tune with a lot of chords, you may not be able to think fast enough to do that. And totally. so, and then that's why I recommend doing what I call uh, chord pairs, mm -hmm. which is where you're just going between two chords mm -hmm. and two sure and two sure shirts. man. But that yeah, exactly what I'm saying. You know, like first, most people, yeah, know, most people are not ready to point. jump onto playing all the the scales right. in eighth notes in time. Exactly. And mm -hmm. uh, when I first tried it, I was like floored. It exactly. kicked my butt. And yeah. so that's why I'm thinking, you know, like you're saying, start with two chords, start rubato, Just do whatever it is where you're going to be able to do it and you're not going to get overwhelmed right. and you're not going to get freaked out that you know 
like, okay, I know I'm doing this correctly, and whoops, I made a mistake. That's okay. You want to know that you're making mistakes so you can improve. Mistakes are part of the learning process. And especially if it's like you got a diminished scale on this bar and then a you know melodic yeah. minor scale on that bar, I would say, well, just work on that one melodic minor scale or that one diminished scale mm-hmm. like totally. for weeks yeah. and in different keys and be really patient with it. You know, don't mm-hmm. exp- be hard on yourself because you can't make that whole tone scale that shows up in the seventh bar. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know, it's yeah. like make a note like, okay, 10 minutes a day on whole tone scales, you know, mm-hmm. for the next six months or whatever. Because you will get it. That's the know. John yeah. Coltrane, Have You Met Miss Jones sort of story. He goes into a session, John Coltrane goes into a session to record Have You Met Miss Jones. And like, what does he do? All he does is practice the bridge. 2 5 and F sharp. Cool, yeah, because that's, because like, uh, yeah. he practices what was the hardest part of the tune, not like, oh, I can just fluff this stuff. Yeah, exactly. So figure out what that handicap is of yours. Maybe it is the one chord in the 19th measure. Right. Make that your strength. Absolutely. It will change your yeah. playing, mm-hmm. you know? Actually, I have this one other thing to add that's pretty quick that's kind of related to this because I remember coming from bluegrass ish background there's not a whole lot of minor chords unless you're playing like a minor tune but i remember like coming across like a c minor seven at one point a few years ago but like i was kind of how do i practice like playing over this and so this is also a billy thing but it's one of the most helpful things that i've gotten from him but it's just this pattern to get you playing over a chord from first position all the way up the instrument that made a lot of sense to me which is basically taking like say a C minor pentatonic scale. So one flat three, four, five, flat seven, and just playing all the notes you can in first position. So um, and then moving up one finger. So right now the second finger is on the uh, B flat. So moving first finger on the B flat, same thing. One more. And kind of so on. And kind of going all the way up till you get to C again or wherever. And then practice going down. But then to get out of that sort of scalier form, skipping every other note, practicing it in groups of three. So, skip the E flat, go to F, skip the G, go to B flat, and then... And then practicing those groupings in triple stops. (laughs) (laughs) And so it's like a way of like getting, because he always seems playing all these triple stops that, how do you think, you know? (laughs) But I think he does a lot, you know, at one point maybe he's done a lot of that. And then doing that with multiple kinds of scales gives the freedom, or at least I think it does, of being able to kind of switch between them. You know, like if you practice that in E flat minor pentatonic. 
minor. kind of you know forcing yourself to make a quick switch when you practice too like mm. four notes C minor four notes E flat and just getting in the habit of like snapping in and out of these different harmonic places I guess that's great and so to be yeah. clear the pattern that he was recommending was actually skip so the first third and fifth note yes exactly yeah, or skip the but you, you could know, if you were doing not a minor, minor. if you're doing a regular scale not a pentatonic like, like, be like harmonizing two, the major right? scale yeah yeah. Right. yeah yeah in third yeah. and fifth okay. and like yeah. I'm really glad you brought that up because that's something I'm really passionate about for cello and bass because due to the nature of our instrument like if I try to do that it doesn't work. Like I literally can't play three notes mm -hmm. on every string on like a minor pentatonic. Mm -hmm. And so this has been a big thing that I try to teach cellists and bassists. Mm -hmm. And this is the thought of horizontal scales. Because when we do that sort of stuff, like I'll take like C minor, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm not gonna use open strings, I'm just gonna start on D. So you have to skip those notes, but I find for me, it's easier if I stay in a position to get around as opposed to having to shift mm -hmm. all over the place. Yeah. So being able to understand uh, finger boxes or horizontal scales on cello, just like what you're talking about, yeah. thinking about it horizontally and for cellos, we have to skip a note. So it's even more important to understand the scale because you, you can't get all of these scales in one position. You know, right. so that's that's a really really powerful exercise. Yeah, it's been really helpful for me and like kind of getting out of the habit of in a blues or something instead of thinking F seven as the first chord, mm -hmm. thinking of like the two or like the C minor seven, but also not just thinking of C minor seven pentatonic as a scale, but being able to kind of break it up in different ways, so that you can get to the point where you know if you do that kind of thing or. <coughs> you'll break it up in different ways and then when that chord comes around it's like instead of thinking of F7 I'd sort of start by thinking of something totally different in those chord kind of shapes I guess. Mm, very cool, very cool. Yeah. I want to ask the three fiddle players actually a question that I think you guys all share coming from a bluegrass or um, fiddle styles background and but you're also all amazing modern jazz players. Is there anything you would say regarding the connection or that help or hurt you? Is there any reason you would recommend that other fiddle players do or don't do both? Did it help you that you play fiddle styles and going to jazz? And I think there's also probably a lot of classical players that think they want to learn jazz, but they don't think they think that they don't like bluegrass because they haven't they don't really know what it is. But mm -hmm. I just don't know if there's anything you would say about that connection because I think people would want to know. I think there definitely is offhand a few things that come to mind would be uh, emphasis on melody in a lot of fiddle styles and improvising, but improvising off the melody. And I think that provides like really great ear training that, that it's not as easy to get, uh, like if you just go through like an academic jazz, you know, and for the best jazz musicians regardless, you know, have that too. Just being able to, you know, play melodically. I think that's a good grounding to have to then like depart and take more modern approaches to playing changes, but having the ability to kind of do like, you know, what they call like controlled improvisation over a given melody. And you're embellishing the melody, not necessarily just thinking of chord tones and stuff like that. They feed each other because fiddle players are maybe less comfortable with thinking of, you know, upper extensions and stuff like that. So I think they 
at least for me, they've helped each other out. Mm-hmm. Like melodically, also rhythmically in a lot of fiddle styles, there aren't any drums or percussion, so you're kind of forced to really uh, hold the time together through the notes that you're playing. That's helped me, but it's also, again, going the other way around, it's been a challenge because the luxury of playing with the great drummer is you don't have to always be playing constant stream of eighth notes and you can leave space so again i think there's like they they help each other out a lot to me yeah. totally yeah i mean I, you know I, I grew up doing suzuki from like three and a half to 12 that's basically all i did until then and i started like doing like western swing stuff with buddy and then really you know i was playing like catch up on the fiddle styles all through high school and still even you know but one of the things i noticed switching from my like non-improvisational background of classical essentially you know from a younger age to that kind of stuff was like how significant the freedom of the bow was that i didn't really grow up with any of that kind of stuff you know i mean it just spent me like probably spent like a good two or three years before i got to where i was realizing that like oh i finally am not like having hang-ups with my bowings and stuff like this which i think is something that's really beneficial from fiddle styles like all the different bowings and all the freedom of the bowings too not set things like that and like you were talking about like the improvisations off the melody and stuff like that that you don't really cover you know from some of the other more classical side of things really like the bow is like a rhythmic tool yeah kind of, totally as a rhythmic yeah. tool and for, and for phrasing too and stuff right. like that we were talking about you know bowing like the first day there and yeah the thing. And like, yeah when I, that's one of the things i noticed is like the most significant thing about trying to learn any other style of music is the phrasing this morning anything right. else it seems like yeah. so like you know even now when i'm trying to figure out bluegrass stuff usually the biggest hang up for me is like how is this guy phrasing it this way oh it's yeah. it's you know there's some stuff going on here some of this, this but a lot of it is just the way that the bowing passage is going you know and then like he may do it this way one time and totally different the next time. Mm-hmm. But I think that freedom of the bowing that comes from fiddle styles like that is totally important to the jazz stuff. We are live at the 2015 Creative Strings Workshop with Mike Barnett. Yeah, I think the fact that there's not a lot of chord extensions in kind of fiddle styles and that they're block chords for the most part, it's like a challenge almost. It's like, how can I play interesting stuff that's yeah. relative to the melody, but also sort of a saying something that's within that. And usually there's only like, at least in bluegrass, you know, as a fiddle player in a bluegrass band, you might play, take one chorus maybe two choruses so trying to like find a way to make that interesting i guess with one mm-hmm. chorus and use the instrument and use all the kind of different things within bluegrass fiddling or or whatever it is you know like in bluegrass it's maybe you want to vary using double stops and uh single note lines and keep it pretty eighth notey but uh you know have like a time where you're low and then in the middle and then up high or whatever mm-hmm. it is and then in texas style it's very eighth note driven and there's a lot of controlled kind of improvisation that's very melody based but it's like really hard to play a line that's just eighth notes that's just that's around the melody for 10 choruses or yeah. something like that yeah. like you gotta keep it interesting and yeah. yeah all these variations you know one thing i can say like you know listening to Billy last night or whatever or like listening to you guys when you play what I hear you can be playing straight eighth notes and I hear space and I think that comes from jazz and there's a way and I don't I don't know it yet I'm still working on it but 
I think there's a way when you play, when you understand you're basing it off the melody, that you have that contrast even though you're playing straight eighth notes and that there is that space. It doesn't sound like you're just going on and on and on. Probably not thinking about that, but as a listener, like, I hear it. You know, even though it's just straight eighth notes, there's, there's ebb and flow. There's that shape to it. It makes it magical as opposed to just, like, a ton of notes. You know? I think another thing, too, is just playing the role of an accompanist, you know, and, and like bluegrass is, you know, really a vocal based music. So often as a fiddle player, like the first thing you learn in a bluegrass band is how to play behind the singer. And then in more stripped down situations, how to provide like adequate rhythmic accompaniment for like mandolin or another instrument or another fiddle. I sometimes enjoy being an accompanist just as much as a lead player. And I, it's, a, it's, a to, it's a really different like headspace for me, but I also feel like it helps my soloing in certain ways. That's why I love bass. Mm-hmm. You know, that's yeah. yeah. I'll do that all yeah. day, man. <laughs> totally, it's you know? fun. Yeah, it's, right. it's fun to just like be. Support. You know what? Be that foundation for right. somebody, and like, how do you build them up? It acts as like a totally yeah. different part of your brain or something, or creative like mind space or something. I don't yeah. know. It's, and that little bit of experience doing that adds so much more when you're doing the other roles. Yeah, too. yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, I've I've mentioned to a lot of my students. You know, I think it's important to practice bass lines. And it's important to practice uh, just doing the comping patterns, different types of comping patterns. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah. and, and, and getting in the headspace of a rhythm section player who is mm-hmm. playing every eighth note of the song and having appreciation for that, you know, uh, mm-hmm. for that kind of grind. I, I can't tell you how many duo gigs I've done with some, you know, some great violin, nobody at this camp, but some of my favorite violinists that can improvise and as a bass clef person, like it's a violin cello duo, right? And I don't need anybody to play backgrounds. I can provide my rhythm and go through the changes, and it's fine. And sometimes I'd rather have them do nothing, because I feel like they don't understand that simple, like, what is appropriate to accompany somebody, and what's the difference between, like, Mm -hmm. you're stepping on my toes and really helping me out. And a violinist that can do that, I, I sincerely appreciate. I think it's a really valuable skill. You all play with such beautiful tone. To what extent do you still work on your tone or notice your tone, practicing, performing? Do you think about tone differently when you're plugged in or unplugged? Do you think about tone differently in the different genres that you play? Uh, Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, it's a deep, I think definitely I'm trying to get to start yeah. with such a deep question. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. I, well, one of the biggest things I would say about it is coming from a classically trained <coughs> standpoint, that you know you're always taught to make like this huge you know you're trying to fill this hall (laughs) with the biggest sound you can so you use all the bow and all the pressure and all the vibrato and all the support and one force and opposing force to fill that hall for me to have that same mindset and try to play fast or try to groove or try to think about anything else as an improviser they don't really go together. Mm-hmm. So so any other time, whether I'm amplified or not, I would prefer to play, you know, as I usually tell people, less bow and less bow changes. Mm-hmm. And you can almost think of like as a mezzo piano or a mezzo 40 dynamic for me if I'm playing any other style, whether it's pop or bluegrass or whatever. Now, if I'm really comfortable, I might get into using more bow and bigger energy and stuff like that. But the faster the song is, the more that I want to conserve my bow arm. That's just personally for me how I deal with that, would deal with that question. How, how do you think of it differently when you're like plugged in versus playing acoustic or through a mic? 
if if I'm if I'm playing you know like acoustic in this room right here, I mean I would still I would feel tempted to want to make that bigger sound, but I would want to play still just quiet uh -huh. because I feel yeah. like to really put energy into the ideas and the rhythm that using too much bow is going to go against that. Mm -hmm. So obviously, if you're amplified, you can turn up as loud as you want and you can really be relaxed. Yeah. But um, even if I was in a room like this without amplification. I'd want to play at that level. Sometimes I'll think about like the kind of combination of like bow pressure and bow speed, mm -hmm. I guess. And just depending on what kind of sound I, I want it to be like, I'll maybe use less or more of one or the other. I feel like lately I've been just maybe trying to practice using a little bit more of the weight of my arm because I it's easier to get like a, a bigger sound for me than, I don't know, I guess just trying to feel that weight coming from here rather than having to do all the work up here just kind of like let it happen in that way the wrist can kind of so. i agree i mean so one of my last show teachers thomas rosenberg i was amazed because the man just like i came in there and i thought i had my technique together and he's like we're gonna work on technique and i was like well i have to learn like uh, and then he totally schooled me and uh i was very humbled and i feel uh, infinitely better as a cellist both improvisationally and classically and one thing we talked about he was like well you know most musicians they're like i want to get a bigger sound so i'm gonna press down into the strings right but when you're pressing down the strings that's not the way the strings vibrate the strings vibrate back and forth right and so we want to think about if we're adding energy to that we want to pull and push the string when we're doing down bow we're pulling the sound out when we're up bow we're pushing the sound out don't think about going in because that's not the way the strings can vibrate so to me, that made a huge difference in like how I'm creating sound. And then from there, man, you know, I've been doing the singing clinic and I've gotten a lot of good feedback. And to me, like my tone is, is my voice. And I try to figure out like, what's the style? What story am I telling? And what tone is going to be appropriate for that? I did more like a hip hop thing the other day. And I was like, I was like, yeah, I'm going to make some like scratchy, nasty, gnarly, off rhythm sort of things you know and that was that story I was trying to tell and then maybe I'll go play with my tango group back home and I want it to be it's still I'm still improvising in there but I want it to be this like very romantic sensual thing and so it's totally different tone but it's still want it to be that extension of my voice because the other thing that's really helped has been getting deeper into recording myself opening up my ears for the majority of my life I was not paying attention to frequencies above like 8,000 Hertz Eight kilohertz. Then I did. Um, it's called Golden Ears. There's a lot of other stuff on the market today. Um, essentially, like music engineering tools and tests to help you train your ears. And so I realized I could. I can actually hear very high comparatively to most people. I can hear up to about 14k. I'm gonna say. So now when I walk pop by like cathode ray televisions and they have that like. It drives me nuts, which is a con, but I hear the full spectrum. I hear like the bow noise that there's like a, at 3K, there's like a certain sound that the bow makes going across the string, regardless what note you're playing. So I really sort of opened up the spectrum of hearing. I turned that on in my brain and that totally changed how I heard my tone as well. And then when I record myself stepping away and listening to myself when I'm not playing, and it's like, what do I like about that tone? What do I don't like about that tone? Shake me away from this beautiful dream. 
Classically trained? Yeah, we did a few years of Suzuki growing up. I did like a bunch of Suzuki. Yeah. Did you do Suzuki? Yeah. We all did Suzuki. I did Suzuki. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. You did, oh, your question? Um, how do you balance working on different styles and working on exercises as opposed to working on mine? Because you're all very good at different styles. Man, for me, when I went to undergrad, when I went to University of Miami, I had done a lot of like I'd learned a lot of my jazz stuff by ear. I hadn't really had a formal, formal jazz teacher. I had played bass for like a month when I got to college, and I was like, I'm going to learn as much as possible on here. And so I signed up for every ensemble that would let me in. Like I was telling somebody about this the other night, I was in wind ensemble, classical orchestra, salsa band, R&B, avant-garde, funk fusion, uh, classical string quartets, uh, alternative style string quartets, jazz vocal one, you name it. I just tried to like try out a style and maybe, you know, maybe I joined the salsa band and I was a gringo at first, you know, and that's okay. And I would just try to, you can't get overwhelmed. If you try to absorb all of it at once, you're going to get overwhelmed. I think what a huge thing for me was, was just like being like, okay, so my focus right now, well, let's take salsa because I, I loved it, but I didn't understand what was going on. I couldn't hear clave, I couldn't hear what the beat was. I got recommendations on records, and so I would just like absorb it. I would just listen to Celia Cruz like all day long and just get in that headspace and figure out every track dissected in my head so that when I went into Salsa Band, I could be like, okay, you know, it's gonna take a while and that's okay. But then you get to a point where you have, uh, you know, a level of comfort where you at least have a solid grip on the basics, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's just, you, and, and the other thing is that I've also found like when you do that, and we're kind of talking about this in practice too, when you delve deeply into one thing, you see how it unfolds into other styles. Like, I don't consider myself a bluegrass player, but like, you could probably jam on those tunes. Why? Because I understand other styles. I understand cello through that. I understand elements of music through that, or elements of Western classical harmony. And then I allow myself to try to understand, okay, what's the articulation that's gonna best fit for like a bluegrass tune, right? Does that make sense? For me, it goes in cycles. So like when I first started um, trying to play a little bit of bluegrass or whatever, like 12 years ago, I just was hanging out with these guys that were playing and I was just digging in or trying to learn how to just hang, like hang on and do a chop or like learn one melody or whatever. And then maybe I'd work on it a little bit, but then I'd come back to it again later work on it again, come back into it again later, and not try to force myself to manage it all at once. Mm-hmm. I get the sense, and I know, I think all of us here are very eclectic, like all, every one of us is not just into one thing, we're into classical, jazz, yeah. you know, all, all kinds of, we can appreciate a lot of different things. But I notice, especially about, well, these, these three, Alex and Eli and Mike, that they go back and forth jobbing between bluegrass and jazz and I go back and forth jobbing on classical and jazz and other kinds of things too but I think being open to have if you're eclectic then by its nature being open to have um, cycles Mm -hmm. because if you're on the road for months with deadly gentlemen that's what you're doing but then you get off the road and you play jazz for a while in some other situation or you come to camp and you play jazz all week and then you're back to, you know. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. don't know, what do you guys think? No, absolutely. I, definitely, and it happens a lot where you're switching back like that. I would say whenever I'm trying to absorb a new style, it's either because of personal interest or for a gig. I usually, I mean, I spend a really intense amount of time focusing just on that and that means like, 
trying to sound as traditional as I can, trying to learn the tradition really well, listening, doing a whole lot of listening more than anything else. I think that's one of the most important things and transcribing. And then anything else beyond that is just figure, it's like, that's all part of it basically right there, I guess, just listening, transcribing and doing it, you know, and doing it too. So like any opportunity there is to do that style, whether it's before the gig, or on the gig, you know, just doing it like that. Because my, my main goal is to be as right in that style as I can be because I want to do a good job. You know, I want to do, I want to sound like I'm doing what I was hired to do. Eventually, at some point, if I get far enough in that style, I want to develop my own sound too. But initially, my goal is to just really sound correct, learn the tradition and learn where it's coming from because that's how you will develop your own style. It's over time. Would you mm-hmm. guys agree with that? Yeah, yeah. yeah that's a hard balance for yeah, me. Definitely. It's finding the... You know, balance between like learning the tradition of any given style, but then also like consciously developing your own unique voice. Like I think ideally you want to be recognizable for who you are, regardless of what style you're playing, but still adequately be playing within that style. Sure. And, yeah. and that's really overwhelming for me because <laughs> me like any <laughs> given style, you can devote a whole lifetime you know, yeah, to yeah, learning. That's, that's you know, and I have like, a short attention span in general, but I I kind of just go through like these natural phases, but then as a result, I'll get frustrated too, because if I haven't been practicing jazz for a while, then I'll get really down about feeling like I'm like going backwards or something, but then I'll do that for a while and then not be able to play an up-tempo bluegrass song. It's it's overwhelming. I guess at the end of the day, it's just about what you feel passionate about and what music moves you, and if you like it, then learn it. I guess it's as simple as that. You just go with what you're feeling in the moment. It's like, oh, I'm digging this bluegrass track. I'm going to like work on that. If you have that opportunity, you know, like there's been times where somebody's like, yeah, I need this crazy genre and like maybe I've heard a little bit of it and I'll, I'll, you know, you can be honest and be like, well, okay, I'm not an expert on that, but like I'm really curious, I'll get my stuff together for this and use that as an opportunity to like, like you, I was talking about, like transcribe, listen, emulate at first, you know. just being in the context is a huge part of it too mm-hmm. because right. just doing it that's part of the reason it's so important to me that, that we have the drummers here at this camp right. mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, I mean i paid yeah. dr- every drummer money to come here yeah. play this because it's really important for you to feel what it's like to play with a drummer yeah yeah like you can play all those swing tunes but it never you know right. playing with a piano player and a great bass player and a great drummer you can never make that up like if you're only playing a string quartet you're never going to get that experience and yeah. i feel like you have to get respect to where that music comes from there's a whole context of people and you yeah. know it's like yeah. for me to try to learn learn bluegrass you know somewhere in ohio without like meeting other bluegrass fiddle players and playing with the dobro and with the banjo and the guitar and like yeah, I mean, totally. you have to you have to connect with those people and, and sometimes that puts you out of your comfort zone but you have to be willing to do that yeah right? yeah yeah, yeah. Um, those things i was listening those are all just when you get a gig to keep a gig 
because the context yeah. is, is the most important thing, really. The opportunity to do it is, if you can get on the gig and you can do well enough that you'll get called back, then you'll always have a chance to grow. And I think that's the best way to grow is, right. I mean, you're not going to, you yeah. can grow as much as on your own, like you're saying, like, you know, a string quartet or whatever, right. but you can sit there and shed jazz right. for like three years on your own and then go play the rhythm section and you have no idea what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I which, is why, yeah. which is why now when I go and play with the rhythm section, you know, like once a year or whatever, I start off like, okay, yeah. I'm going to play as little as I can for these first five choruses <laughs> so I can get into the feel of it here yeah, before yeah. I get started. Yeah. You know, personally, that's... Uh, I, used to go, I used to go to the uh, bluegrass, like the amateur bluegrass jams just so I could like try to chop along with them and just feel it. And yeah. I knew I was like totally beginning. I didn't know the tunes or whatever, but like every time there's going every Tuesday to the gym at Dick's Den or whatever, you know, mm -hmm. I, would, I would learn a little something from it and get a little better. Yeah. And same time, like, Daphnis Prieto hired me one time to play in his band in New York while I was in his band and on the record and everything. But, like, for the first eight rehearsals, I told people, like, I couldn't find one. I had no idea. And this guy's, the rhythm is so crazy. But just playing with him eight, nine, ten times, I started, mm -hmm. eventually, you just start to get it. Mm -hmm. So it's really yeah. important just to get the opportunity to do those things. Definitely. Yeah. And it's like, you know, so I've been doing some beginner students, uh, some blueses, and, you know, a student would be like, so yeah, we can use the blues scale over this, right? And I'm like, well, yes, technically, but I don't want you to use that other crutch. Like, go listen to some great blues musicians. Like, are they using the blues scale? Sure, but listen to how are they using that. Super, super soulful, you know? And then, like, beginning students translate that to like, oh, well, over the whole blues, I can go. You know what I mean? Like, and that's such a different thing, like. It's my question I would throw out, but I don't know if it has an answer or not, but at what point are you actually like doing more bad than good for either professionally or just as an artist if you try to do too much? And at what point are you doing yourself good? You mean too Especially much? in this era that we live in when we have access to everything. And in one way it's amazing, but in one way it's, I wonder if it's harder to have most of our favorite musicians that we listen to just had more limited listening. It was about what they heard on the radio or what they grew up around. And I mean, it's an amazing thing that we can listen to any kind of music, but it, for me personally, it, when I hear something that, that's amazing and blows my mind, I'm like, gosh, well, like, I'll never be able to do that, but I want to like learn something about it. But then at a certain point you have to like, hone in and like prioritize your time too. Professionally, it's good to be able to do a lot of things, but at what point is it working against you? I don't know, I just think about that kind of thing. My example would be when I studied Hindustani, North Indian classical music. I appreciated what I learned, but you just realize like there's such tradition and like depth to understanding that style of music so far beyond my comprehension. Mm -hmm. So being realistic about it. The, another part of the question you said was, you know, when you apply the exercises. Yeah. As far as practicing exercises, I think that you should practice exercises that are related to things that are coming up in your life. You know, like yeah. I said before, like, I mean, if you have a gig, and you're playing a certain tune in E flat, then you should mm -hmm. practice in E flat for the days <laughs> prior to the gig. And I think that you should always be practicing exercises. Eventually, they're going to work themselves out. You'll be able to apply them because the exercise is so that you can internalize something. Mm -hmm. And once you've internalized it, then it'll come out and you're playing. You'll be able to apply it. Practicing together, like with a friend yeah. or with a sibling or whatever, I think that's a big thing too. Not in you know, consciously practicing together, not just jamming together. Yeah. We've like tried doing some of that, and then you like hear things in a different way, and you can like comp for each other and talk about things. Mm -hmm. A few people could camp said, "Well, I can't jam in the jam session because I don't know the tunes." I said, "Well, go find a buddy and jam." You know, yeah. me and Mike yeah. used to practice together in Boston. I mean, you know, I think, yeah. you know, I mean, he was in theory was taking lessons from me, but I was like. <laughs> <laughs> 
know, he was showing me all kinds of, you know, so you practice, I mean, that's practice. I'd be like, okay, or like me and Alex later on could be like, hey, let's work on that rhythm changes in B. You know, I'm going to work on my bass line and you work on your solo and yeah. then flip and you walk bass for me. Yeah. That's a, or, you know, yeah. you want to work on melodic minor scales because you've never worked on melodic minor scales. You should play melodic minor scales in, in thirds and do it in like some kind of ascending, descending patterns and just like play vamps underneath and work on your rhythm while the top person plays like melodic minor scale patterns, you know. Mm -hmm. it I worked on melodic minor scales for about a year until I started to really feel like, yeah, now I got it. I got melodic minor scales. But for a year, I just kind of worked on it, didn't get it, didn't, couldn't really hear it, couldn't really play it. But then after a year, I was like, man, I'm burning some melodic minor now, you know? Right. So, mm -hmm. And I've seen all these guys go through phases with different similar things, whether it was like a bebop scale or like working on certain kinds of double stop things or mm -hmm. whatever mm -hmm. the type of concepts like Eli opened up talking about that concept that he's working on, you know. He's gonna go through that as an exercise, practicing using that focus, but then eventually it's gonna become this thing that probably bursts open for him. Hope so. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanna wrap it up. Um, thanks, and we are live at the 2015 Creative Strings Workshop with Eli Bishop and Alex Hargraves and Mike Barnett and Greg Byers. Let's give it up for them. Thanks for listening in to episode 10. Hope that you are able to use some of these exercises and hopefully you had your instrument out or if not, you can remember some of these cool ideas and use them next time you're in the practice room. As always, I want to encourage you to share this with your friends, spread the word, go to the show notes page uh, to learn more about Alex, Eli, Mike, and Greg. I want to thank our sponsors, Electric Violin Shop. If you go to electricviolinshop.com forward slash creative strings you can get discounts you can find their phone number and give them a call they are helpful they're awesome big thanks to them until next time i'm christian house and again i want to thank you for tuning in to creative strings <laughs>